Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland, and we are on episode 87 already. Today, we're going to be uh, sharing the first of two parts of an interview with Minnesota Poker Hall of Famer Mike Schneider. We're going to be talking a bit about his upcoming events with the Poker is Fun Tour, including some crazy pineapple and winners shown events that are going to be held down at Canterbury Park in Shakopee, Minnesota, and then we'll chat a little bit about how we can prioritize our options for improving our game as recreational players, and then we'll continue a prior discussion that him and I had about uh, continuation bet sizing. So looking forward to that. I think you're going to enjoy that quite a bit. I want to also thank um, some folks that have been doing some rec poker promotion. We had uh, some great shots of Stacy Nelson at Running Aces, Rob Washam at the World Series of Poker main event where he was actually playing a bit with Jason Mercier, and he got a little bit of coverage on ESPN2 as an, at a uh, outer uh, feature table. And also Chad McVean, who was at the World Series of Poker and took his picture with Scott Blumstein, who was last year's main event champion. So you can see all of those pictures out on Twitter at the at RecPoker account. So thanks to you guys for wearing the patches, wearing the shirts. Uh, looks great out there. We're getting a number of inquiries, and we're continuing to, to grow the show because of you guys. So thanks for that. And I also want to take a second to thank our sponsor, Running Aces. And once you hear this uh, commercial from them, we'll come back and you will hear part one of my new interview with Minnesota Poker Hall of Famer, Mike Schneider. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack has the best poker room in Minnesota, featuring 24-7 promos on all cash poker games, including earning $2 per hour in comps, plus the most player-friendly tourney structures. Visit runaces.com for daily promotions and the tournament calendar. Running Aces Casino and Racetrack, the official sponsor of Rec Poker. All right. Well, everybody, uh, as promised, I am here with, uh, at least over phone, with Minnesota Hall of Famer, uh, Poker's Fun Tour founder, Mike Schneider. And first of all, Mike, as always, thanks for uh, being so gracious with your time. Yep. Yeah, no problem. It's a pleasure to be here speaking with you. Like I, I was looking forward to this. Thanks. And we've had a number of episodes. I don't know where we are, like 85 or 90 different episodes. And still, uh, the interview that we did with you, which I believe was episode 30, is still our most listened to episode. So there's a there's a hunger out there and people keep saying, when are you going to get Mike back on? When are you going to get Mike back on? So uh, people love hearing from you and, and the insight that you have. Yeah, that's that's awesome to hear. I'm sure that some of the, the recent heavy hitters that you've had on are probably going to overtake me. Just give them a little <laughs> more time. Like, <laughs> like the Matt Burkeys of the world. Yeah, like Matt Burkey, Jonathan Little. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like I'm sure a lot of those guys. Give them another year or two. They'll they'll probably they'll, pass they'll overtake you. Yeah. <laughs> but but none of them will ever become a Minnesota Hall of Famer. So who cares about them, right? <laughs> but no, that's but but people are. I, it's one of the things that I hear from all the time is you know, boy, I'd love to hear more from Mike. And and I know a lot of folks are sort of. Um, uh, afraid to share their insights, and I think you you walked that that line very good as far as not giving away your secrets, but yet you know helping equip us newer players to improve our game and become better at the game. So I think that's what people really appreciate about you. And I'd say for those of you who are out there, you know, Mike and I today we're not going to get into his story of how he got into poker and all of those things. But uh, if you are interested in Mike's backstory. Uh, we've already done that, and I believe that is episode 30, so you can go back and, and listen to those those things. But, Mike, the first thing I wanted to chat with a little bit is some things have changed in your world since we last chatted. I'd love to hear just a little bit about, you know, what, what how did the Poker's Fun Tour stuff go, the, the first stuff that you held, but also, you know, on, on the personal family side of things, you've got some changes going on. 
Oh, yeah. Personally, uh, yeah, my life changed a lot about seven and a half months ago. Uh, my wife and I had a daughter who we named May, and, yeah, she's been really awesome, really fun to be around. But, uh, yeah, my uh, poker life has been a little bit different since she's been born. It's, like, way harder to find time to play. Uh, when I'm playing, I feel like I'm a lot more tired than I used to be, and it's just <laughs> been a... It's been a tricky transition so far trying to balance it. Like, she sleeps really well at night, but doesn't like going to bed early. So, like, even, like, this past week, we've had two nights where she'll fall asleep at 8, wake up at 9, and then uh, just, like, want to be up till, like, 12 or 1 at night, which, like, fortunately, I can kind of handle that, minus the fact that if I'm letting, letting my wife sleep, because she has work tomorrow, but then this was supposed to be time I could be doing some work, but I'm not, and it's... It's been tricky. It's, a, it's, to it's say tough, and, yeah. and people that don't have kids, it's hard to really explain. You know, the, the schedule. You're not always in control of your schedule, and even just the emotional and physical draining toll that it can take to be a new parent. It's it's tougher oh, than yeah. people realize. Yeah, that'd be like the number one thing I'd tell a new parent. Whatever expectations you have going into the day, just get rid of them. Your day is never going to go how you envisioned it. So stop, stop envisioning, and just. Enjoy it. Just enjoy the moment. Like, there's lots of fun times. And not trying to, like, whine or sound like it's negative because, like, I I have a blast with her, like, 99% of the time. Right. It's that one little little chunks where, where it's like, I wish you would nap right now, but you aren't <laughs> napping. And, like, yeah, sure. I'm sure like, you know how it goes. Oh, I know how it goes. You know, I've, I've been through I've been through the journey. I've had three kids, including twins first. And it's, it's a lot of work. And I think the, yeah. the biggest key is just uh, – being flexible enough to adjust to it. I think a lot of folks, and I think especially guys, struggle a little bit with having kids and thinking it's not going to change their world until they try to hang on to everything that they did before and the way that they did it before. And I think that's where uh, it can be really difficult. I think you just have to be, accept the fact that your world is going to change and then try to engage it and enjoy it as much as possible. And like you said, most of the time it's an absolute, uh, something you'd never trade. Oh yeah, yep. You, yeah, I think you nailed that perfectly. And so now the the poker is fun tour. Now you've had a few events in the past, and then you've uh, kind of gone back and you've you've uh, looked at what's next, and you got some things coming up. So talk a little bit about what you did before, what you learned from that, and now what's coming up. Yeah. So the first time last fall in September at Canterbury, I did a two a winners shown events, which. Those those went pretty well, like I'd say. I mean, I wouldn't be lying if I was a little disappointed. We didn't crack 100 players in either of those the events, but, like, I definitely learned a lot about as far as promoting it and just trying to stay actively within the poker community and just trying to, trying to keep the buzz going. And so that brings me to uh, the – in July here, on July 20th, Friday night, we have a 6 p.m. Uh, no Limit Crazy Pineapple, which is an $80 buy-in, and I'll get into a second of, like, brief description of how to play that, but yeah. all, all these tournaments, uh, so the, one of the big things about Poker is Fun Tours, I wanted uh, a portion of the prize pool to be donated to charity, which, like you, like you run Alan for Africa, and Alan for Africa is super awesome, too, and just say... I felt like uh, in poker, like, you'd go on, like, 2 plus 2 news views and gossip, and, like, half the threads there are about scammers or this or that, mm-hmm. just, like, tons of negative stuff, and I just wanted to try to bring a, a little bit more positivity into poker, which, to me, like, helping the community out is, there's nothing more positive than that. Like, if you can 
you can get a bunch of people together, play a tournament, have some fun while doing it, and raise some money towards charity. Like I, that was kind of where where I wanted the Poker's Fun Tour to go. And so this time, uh, gonna have about, which I say roughly five percent of the prize pool. Two of the events are five percent. The third one is just under, but then I'm gonna be donating a little money to get it up to five percent. But about five percent of the prize pool going to uh, the Ronald McDonald House, hmm. which. Uh, that charity I chose because uh, when my wife and I had our daughter, uh, she ended up at Children's Hospital uh, NICU for a couple nights, so we ended up actually staying at, at the Ronald McDonald House, and I pretty much feel forever indebted to them because we were on, like, no sleep for, like, 36 hours straight and weren't going to have anywhere to sleep outside of in the NICU room, and just having that option available was pretty much a mental lifesaver for my wife and I, so... Yeah, that's kind of how uh, Ronald McDonald House got chosen. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah so uh, going back to the, just the schedule, so then on Saturday, July 21st, 11 a.m., we have a winner shown as making an encore appearance, this time a $250 buy-in, and $10 out of that 250 is going to Ronald McDonald House. And then uh, to get it up to 5%, I, I'll be uh, donating the remaining $0.40 cents per entrant needed to get it to 5%. And then on Sunday, July 22nd, we have another crazy pineapple at 12.30 p.m. for a $100 buy-in with uh, $4 out of that prize pool getting donated to Ronald McDonald House. And, uh, so, yeah, I guess so, it's a, so it's a Friday, a Saturday, and a Sunday, one yeah, each yep. day, uh, crazy pineapple, winter shown, crazy pineapple. Yeah, yep. So July 20 to 22, and... Yeah, like this time, uh, just one of the feedback I got from the, the first tournament, the buy-ins were like 180 and 450 dollars. Like one of the feedback that Canterbury got and I got was tournament, the buy-in prices for something new was just a little too high for a lot of players that I'm trying to reach feel comfortable trying something new. So that's why this time coming in at a little smaller price point, especially for Crazy Pineapple, which one of the things I'm excited about, I think this will be the first time Crazy Pineapple's ever been played in a Minnesota casino. I mean, I could be wrong about that, but as far as I'm aware, it is. Which, then, uh, to give your viewers that may not know what Crazy Pineapple is, it's very, very similar to Texas Hold'em. The uh, main difference is you get dealt three cards pre-flop instead of two. So you do your pre-flop wagering, you get dealt the flop, you do flop wagering, then once that's complete, before a turn card is dealt, you have to discard one of your three cards in your hand. Then the turn and river are played just like Texas Hold'em. Is there still like a small blind, big blind, so literally yeah. everything's, everything's the yep. same except three cards for the pre-flop and the flop, and then you then you ditch one before the turn? Yeah, yep, that's that's ah. exactly, exactly how it works, so... Yeah, so like I've played it at home games a little bit, like not a ton, but enough to know that I thought it seemed like a really enjoyable little twist and something yeah. that still isn't too far off from Hold'em. It's I mean, like I know like Rooster Poker on Twitter described it as kind of like uh, Omaha Lights or just like uh, just I mean it's not not really that close to Omaha, but just the fact that you have more cards, it, it's just to me it's really cool. Like. Uh, and a little side note, like playing the mixed game at Canterbury where we have like Sud A, Omaha 8 or better, Big O, Triple Draw in there, and Hold'em, 
Well, the funny things about that mixed game is once it gets around to the Hold'em orbit, like that's that's a game where more people lock for than any other game. Like I, hmm. like with Poker's Fun Tour, like I, I just wanted to try to try to get a, get more people to realize that. I mean, Tex Hold'em is a really fun game, but once you get dealt more cards, to me, like more cards is more fun. <laughs> there's a right. there's a lot more ways that like in Pineapple, when you have three cards, there's a lot more ways that you can hit a flop. There's right. And just, just like all these different, different variations, just something to me, something new and different is always like I realize with poker, like as I play more and more games, it makes me enjoy poker more when I'm, cause a lot of the fun when you, when I first started playing was hold, hold them was trying to figure out what are the best strategies. I'm not right. sure yet. I'm just really digging into it where once you've played hold them for years and years and years, it, May for a lot of players, it may not feel stale, and I'm just trying to offer something a little bit different than what you can play every other day of the week at a casino. Yeah, and it feels like somewhere between. I, mean, I played Omaha a few times, never played Crazy Pineapple, but it feels like somewhere in between. So like Omaha, you know, you get the four cards, uh, and then it feels like man, it's basically full house or better to win. If you have the nut flush, you're never going to feel good on a paired board. Uh, you know, there's a lot of it's, it's really fun. A lot of kind of craziness in there. You know, what beats what? You have to remember you can only use two whole cards and you can't use, you know, more or less. And and so I think there's, a, you know, that's kind of a, a new level of complexity for a lot of us beginning players that we maybe play, yeah. but it feels a little complex. Whereas Crazy Pineapple feels like, yeah, that's some, you know, the average hand is going to be bigger. Uh, you know, you're going to have maybe a few more pre-flop hands that you're going to want to play because of different combinations. But at the end of the day, after the after the flop betting is done, then it comes down to you've got two cards, you've got five community cards. It's sort of the has that same feel as you're progressing towards showdown. So maybe it's it's less of a leap of trying something new than Omaha might be. Yeah, that was yeah, that's a big reason why I decided to go go this way of something that kinda like, to me it's kinda like having the train wheels and we slowly taking the train wheels off kind of a thing. Right. And plus at the same time though with nobody having played this game before, like if you're yeah. if you're a player that's never played it before, you can enter the tournament no you're playing with eight or nine other people at the table that likewise, this is probably the first time they've ever played of it. So like I know like one of my biggest poker regrets actually is like years and years ago when I played high stakes and limit hold'em games at Commerce and around that time was when mixed game a lot of more mixed games started. Like there would be like a hold'em triple draw game or just like a five game mix or whatever and I was too intimidated to just try the other games because I assumed everybody mm-hmm. else in the game was an expert at it or they've been playing for years or whatever, and I just didn't want to give it a chance. Where in hindsight, I I really wished I would have just sat down and played and probably saw that they weren't too much further along than me and the fact that most of these games, once, once you have a solid fundamental poker mind, it's not really too hard to transition from one game to the other. It's I feel like going from knowing how to play zero to one game takes a lot more time than mm-hmm. from one to two or one to five games. It's just once you have a solid solid fundamentals down, it's it's all yeah. math and card sense. And once you have that card sense, it's not it's not hard to pick up the different nuances. Right. Certainly, you know a lot of the, a lot of the things stay the same. You're still considering yeah. you know where you are at the stage of the tournament, what's your stack size. You know, what's the player type you're against? I mean, a lot of those things are still the same considerations. It's just uh, a few more combinations of what the hands could be, and your ranges change a little bit. Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds great. So so the 20th, 21st, and 22nd are Friday, Saturday, Sunday. 
Again, crazy pineapple on the Friday and the Sunday. Yep. Uh, winter shown on the Saturday, which I wasn't able to play the first time around, and I won't be able to this time because my daughter's graduation open house. I'm super bummed. But uh, what I have heard about it has just been fantastic. People that I know have played it that I'm going to do everything I can to play it again. It was so much fun, especially, uh, you know, you draw in some, some good names in the poker playing community, uh, which uh, can be intimidating to some, but it's also, you know, they're having more fun than normal because of the winter show thing. But you also get to see what they're playing, how they're playing it. And I think uh, that could be really insightful for us newer players. It's almost like getting a poker lesson to go there and spend a few hours and see what people are doing and how they're playing things and what their ranges are. So uh, I would really encourage people to go check that out just from a, a fun perspective, but also go in as a, with a learning attitude. Yeah, I would say, yeah, I guess I talked about pineapple the whole time. Winter's shown of that. Uh, yeah, I was amazed by just how awesome the environment was both the days there. Like, everybody just seemed way more lighthearted. Like, no, nothing wrong with being on an iPad or an iPhone sure. or many of those while playing tournaments, but just due to the fact that if you watched the whole hand and, and had your attention on the table, you got to see the outcome every hand. It just made it so that people weren't really using their technology. They were way more engaged, way more talkative and chatty, and just the, the whole environment seemed a lot more laid back and friendly and fun, which, which I mean, playing serious tournaments, are they're, they're great, especially if there's a huge prize pool. I understand that it's natural to want to be serious because there's a lot of money to play for, but it, it was a nice little step back to feel like it was an environment that felt a lot more like if you were getting together with six friends and playing in some of these baseball right. which I think that'll that'll should be the the environment this time around and I guess so uh, one other thing too I'd say like I know like some people might feel like they're they're afraid to play winter show because they don't want to show other people how they play too but mm-hmm. I would say if that's your fear like if you're a regular player like maybe consider playing but try playing a different way than you normally play like you like if you're a guy that generally always has it and you think people are aware of that maybe show up with the attitude I'm going to play really aggressive and bluff just just to give my other regular players of play something new to think about so they may not think of me as a huge net. Or vice yeah, versa, if you play really aggressively most of the time, maybe show up to this tournament and try to rein it in a little so your opponents will be like, <laughs> oh, he isn't, he isn't an aggressive maniac. He actually has it when he does that. Every like, time so he shows he down, right. Yeah, you can definitely, like, if, if that's your fear and a reason why you wouldn't want to show up, I'd say put it aside and just, play this tournament with the attitude of you're going to show them something new. Right. And, I, and like I said, I think, you know, I'm just such an inquisitive guy, and I, I love the idea of learning. Uh, and as somebody who's not going to be paying a lot for, for coaching lessons and that sort of thing, to be able to go there, see how people play hands, and even if it's not to, you know, sort of, you know, make a mental note about how that particular person plays, just the idea of saying, wow, so they, this is interesting. I never really considered, you know, three-betting with ace-four suited. You know, it, it may open up some new conversations either with that person or people at your table or just that you take back home and say, wow, so this, this person that I really respect as a player was three betting ace four suited. What, you know, what can I learn about that? Is that, do I agree with that? Do I disagree? You know, what others have to say? And I think it, it really sort of fuels that curiosity and growth in your game that comes from asking those sorts of questions that you maybe would have never considered if you didn't see what people were showing down. Yeah, for sure. I, yep, I would agree 100% with that. I guess I don't know if I have anything more to add to that sentiment, but definitely true that as you, you watch or even just like kind of getting a, a better feel for 
how often on flops or sea bets happen in the pocket mm-hmm. staking down like just uh, getting a really strong feel for how often do people have it versus do they have right. overcards that they probably would have folded to if you so if their opponent gave aggression just getting getting an inside glimpse that all of that can be really helpful for somebody who who wants to play this tournament with the attitude of I'm going to try to use this as an educational experience in addition to playing the tournament trying to win and make money. Right. I love it. So we're going to we'll transition here to, to a little more strategy talk, but if people want to find out more information, uh you know, what website should they go to? How do they connect with you on social media? How do they how do they get the uh the in and the skinny on what's going on with the Poker is fun to her. Yeah, well, the best ways are either on the website, which is pift.com, or piftpoker.com, sorry, or on the Twitter handle, which is the same, piftpoker, which is on Twitter, or even my own Twitter, which is schneidspoker, so S-D-H-N-E-I-D-S, poker. Any of those ways are probably the best ways to either reach me or ask questions about the upcoming fifth poker events. And all three of these are happening at Canterbury Park down in Shakopee, Minnesota, correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So so check it out. Uh, connect with Mike. He's a great follow anyway, even if you're not able to play the events. Uh, you know, check in with Mike and follow him and keep keep abreast of what's going on in his world and with little May. And, and <laughs> yeah, fun yeah. Uh, she, she's a cutie, so you'll want to check out the pictures. the occasional anyway. picture on Twitter, too. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Good stuff. Well, let's, let's shift gears a little bit, Mike, and, and I want to – I, you know, I've got a few burning questions that I've had left over from our prior conversation, as well as, you know, we had a really good, really good conversation that I've listened to a few times myself. And uh, as I hear, you know, other players, as we've been lucky enough to interview some other uh, fantastic players, you know, you know, my whole world is how do I reconcile what they said with what Mike said? And so I, I want a few things. I have a few things that I just love to follow up with you on that you know I've thought of or that other people have approached me with. If, yeah. if that's cool, okay. Oh, yeah, so. Definitely. So one of the things is, uh, for a lot of us recreational players, and our audience has been growing and it's, you know, it continues to broaden as far as uh, depth of experience, but, you know, one of the things that we get a lot of feedback about is there really is only so much time in the day to become a better player off the felt, uh, especially for us recreational players. So if we have, we have a limited time, um, but yet there seems like there's this infinite amount of resources available so we struggle with what are some of the things that we should consider when we're deciding uh, who we should learn for or what medium we should learn from. And um, we can watch live streams of commentary. We can watch free training videos. There's uh, We could read discussion forums. We could choose a training course. We could have group discussions or hand breakdowns with other players. We could get personal coaching. I mean, there's just this, a myriad of things that we could do, but yet most of us can't commit to, you know, 20 hours a week to learning the game. So, I'm curious from your perspective what guidance you might be able to give as far as how do we how do we sift through all of that and make a decision on what's right for us in our game. All right, yeah, I guess I'd say first uh, you need to consider like what kind of learner you are, which like for me, I know I learn stuff better by reading or viewing or like putting getting my hands dirty and doing it versus like listening to a podcast or like those kind of things. So like my like my answer for me might be different than other people. I mean, like some people have great reading comprehension, others are like great listeners. Like it's just a lot of ways to do that. But like that said, I'd start off by saying like watching live streams of commentary while being entertaining, it's probably not going to help your game that much just because uh, 
a ton of the time, uh, the commentators either are not amazing players, or even if they are, they're maybe not trying to offer up much in strategic invite or, or insight. So they're so a lot of times, like that commentary, it's just things that are going to be dumbed down or pretty simple, and it's pretty rare to find live stream commentary that's going to really do much for your game. Plus, uh, plus when you're watching these final tables, like you're you're only seeing it from players 10 on down like you have no clue whether player a played four different pots versus player b earlier in the tournament mm-hmm. which influences how they maybe played a specific hand that you're watching at the final table where without that kind of insight it's it's really hard to like look at a hand and say oh wow that player just just like three bet that guy with with 10-9 suited like is that i mean that guy was under the gun is that like the right player not like mm-hmm. we for all we know, the, the player of the three of ten nine suited saw this guy open raise five straight times under the gun earlier in the tournament and saw him get through that three times and fold every time. Like, we just hmm. don't have any insight to be able to say, or like, uh, if you're just watching the tournament, you'd be like, oh, I know that player, like, has two million in cashes. They three bet it under the gun guy of ten nine suited. Maybe I should put that in my game. It's just without, <laughs> without much context, it's really hard to be able to gather if it's, if it's, in a vacuum, it's right in a vacuum, I mean that one specific time right now in the moment, whether it was a good player or not, or if it was based on other metagame stuff from earlier in the tournament. But yeah, so, uh, I would say, I mean, like for me, I, I mean, this was 10, 15 years ago, I got a lot of value by participating in poker forums, namely uh, 2plus2.com, which that's C-W-O-P-L-U-S, C-W-O.com, but, From what I've understood, the quality of the content on that site isn't quite as strong as it used to be. Just like way more Twitter trolls and hard to find serious discussions, but there are still plenty of them in there. Which that'd be if you're a player looking to try to find free ways to improve your game. I still think that's probably one of the better free ways. And then, uh, as far as uh, let's see, if you're talking like free videos, I I put a little caveat there that uh, I'd avoid most free training videos, which I'm not saying that there aren't some good ones out there, but most of the training that's worth its weight is, is going to cost money to get access to. Just like uh, most good players aren't going to be giving away their best stuff for free when there's, mm-hmm. there is a market out there that will pay for it. So, And all that said, though, I, I was throwing that I used to do back when cardrunners.com was a poker instructional website. They now they have a YouTube channel with a bunch of free videos on it, which I I would have to recommend if you're looking the free route that that would be one good resource. Even if the videos are several years old, they're still gonna, especially if you're a recreational or more early beginner level player, they'll definitely have plenty of good concepts that'll help help teach a lot of the fundamentals, even if the content might be a few years outdated. That's so, yeah. really good. So, so yeah. you had mentioned that your style is more, and I think, I think that that person that you gave is absolute gold. You got to know yourself. I think self-awareness is so critical for every stage of life, like poker. So the idea of, first of all, figure out how do you learn the best. Don't try to learn the same way everybody else did. How do you learn the best, and then optimize your your training plan within that. And so, with that, you said, you know, you're more of a hands-on, roll up your sleeves, kind of get dirty and do it. Um, does that mean, you know, for you, it's really just getting your own reps and actually just playing, playing the game? Or was there a way that you sort of did intentional training 
you know, what sort of training did you get yeah. that, that led you to rolling up your sleeves and actually doing it? Did you have somebody looking for over me, your shoulder or? For me, once my poker playing got to, I mean, to the point where I was a pretty good player, a lot of it was just playing and then, uh, taking away from every session one hand, five hands, just to get at least a couple of hands that I would then be able to either ask some friends about who I know are pretty good players. So like, yeah, I know one of the things you said was uh, discussion groups, which I think I think asking other players, assuming that they're at least somewhat competent, I, I think that too is one of the better ways, especially one of the better free ways to get better. But for me, especially now, a lot of my poker studying per se is uh, playing hands and then after the fact, remembering what they were and either asking friends about them or I can use uh, like different different programs such as like Combinator is a good one, especially mm-hmm. when trying to analyze range versus range, which is kind of like the big, the big way that people are approaching no one at hold them these days. But yeah, um, uh, let's see. And then, like, poker, yeah, poker Stove is another that's, I'm pretty sure it's still a free program on the internet that works really well for looking at hand equities, which I've used, especially for Limit Hold'em, over the years, I've used Poker Stove uh, a ton. Which, even that, like, that works great too for, like, No Limit tournaments, like, looking at Especially like after the fact, like let's say you shoved all, like a guy open raised and you mm-hmm. shoved all in pre-flop with pocket eights, you can, you can then like go back and be like, I think he'll probably call with these, this hand, this hand, that hand, that hand, that hand, and then you can see how eights do against that whole range of hands. So, or, or in the converse, like a lot of times it's more like you open raise, somebody shoves, and now, now it's on you whether to call or not. You can right. figure out, I mean, based on the pot size, how much pot odds you need, and then you can plug in what you think their range of shoving hands are against you, and really then come, just by playing around with that enough, you get a pretty solid grasp on, on what type of hands you should be calling in that spot versus folding based on what the pot odds are offering you. Yeah, I love those sorts of tools. I think that they're great. You know, even if you can't remember everything, just to, in a situation, remember, you know, sort of put in that situation and go, man, I had more equity here than I thought or less than I thought. And it just sort of helps you inform going forward, even if you can't remember all the details. Those tools are fantastic. And I know I've used them at the table before where I, you know, somebody was asking me about something. I said, well, you actually have, like, probably 45% equity against their range. And they're like, no, 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 no. So we're sitting there between hands, probably not – what we're supposed to be doing, but, you know, I'm saying, well, what, what do you think they would do that with? You know, I'm plugging it in, and I said, what did you have? And then we put that in, and I'm like, yeah, look at look at that. And they're like, no way, you know. So I think those are things that can really, you know, lead to some great insights. Even if you're not super mathematically inclined, I think just understanding in general, in general sense what sort of equity you have in what situations I think is critical. And and then you mentioned, you know, having a, a network of people sort of having your – your poker tribe, I think that is huge to, oh, yeah. to 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 have that and say, okay, who are these people that I trust to help me, you know, evaluate this play in this situation? I think that's I think that's huge, depending on your learning style again. But I think yeah. most people could really benefit from that. Oh yeah, that yeah, the whole poker tribe thing not only huge for your developing your game, but just huge mentally too. Like it's. Mm. It's great, like, if I have a bad week, I, I can tell my poker bros about it and not carry it to the family and take it out of <laughs> right. them. Like it's just, There's a filter. <laughs> it's, yeah, nice to, with, like, other like-minded people that have, like, 
been there before through the highs and the lows, just a little, I mean, not like, not like venting, whining stuff, but a little bit of that, too. Right, right. But they know the feeling when the guy yeah. gets the River 10 against yeah. your pocket kings. They they oh, know yeah. what that feels like versus yeah. trying to explain to somebody that doesn't play. You know, you're you're, you're explaining to May. May is going to grow up all these bad stories. <laughs> you won't believe you know, what yeah. happened to me, you know. No, I think yeah. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me yeah. shift gears to a, another question I have for you. Um, you know, and, and when we were talking earlier, uh, you know, one of the things that you've helped me with quite a bit is, is thinking about continuation bets. And, um, and I know at least in some situations, uh, you've shown some merit in making smaller continuation bets, which, you know, when I first started playing, a lot of it was, man, half pot, three quarters pot. It doesn't really change in the situation. If you're going to bet, make a big bet. And, you know, you, you showed some of the merit of making these smaller bets. And I've incorporated that quite a bit. And I love, I frankly, I love that. Um, but I still hear from a lot of players about, you know, making bigger sizes. And so some people are saying, you know, you need to be consistent whatever you do, either consistently small, consistently half pot, consistently three-quarter spot. And then you get into people that are saying, no, your, you know, your bet size should be based on the texture of the board. So, you know, you should have bigger bet sizes when it's a wetter board and smaller when it's more uh, a drier, more polarized board. And so, you know, I think, you know, I, I still get sort of competing messages, and I know maybe a lot of it depends. Maybe they're being consistent. It's just they're talking about different situations. Um, but it seems to me there's this whole there's this whole balance between, um, you know, the, the bigger the bet, the higher our fold equity, basically, or we're building a pot. Um, but yet there's on the other side, the smaller bet sizes are maybe more pot control. Um, so I'm just kind of curious. I'd love to dig in a little bit more into this and maybe – Hear a little bit more from you around how do you how do you think about bet sizing? So not not so much the decision on if I'm going to bet or not, but just when you're deciding your bet size. Once you've decided to bet, how do you navigate that? Are you pretty consistent with your sizing? Do you have certain things that you're basing it on? Or you know, without giving away all of your great secrets, <laughs> help help us sort of give us a little more meat on the bone of how do we decide how do we decide on our bet sizing? All right, yeah, I guess I would uh, first just go back and uh, say that, yeah, I agree, hypothetically, we should be betting more when we want folds and we have higher fold equity than, and likewise, that's smaller when we don't want folds. Like, I agree that, yeah, hypothetically, that's uh, very sound and true, which, uh, before I get into the answer, though, I just say it took me a little bit of time to fully grasp this no-limit concept, but it's true that we... We gain the most EV in our large bet sizes when there's bluffs, which it feels so counterintuitive to say there's $1 in the pot and I bet $1,000 i am supposed to almost always be bluffing. Like that, like when you make that statement, like to me it's just like really hard to wrap your mind around it. Then when you look at it from the other guy's side of, now it's like I have to put in $1,000 to win that $1 plus $1,000 you bet. Well, that means like I have to have, like I have to have a really strong hand in there because of pots. Pot odds mm-hmm. are just like not that good. So like on the converse, if the pot has one thousand in it and he bets a dollar, now it's like I pretty much can't fold anything ever because he's gonna make a lot of money if I fold more than one in thousand and he's actually like bluffing at it one in a hundred times. Hmm. So it's say it's like taking that and then for me, I guess to get back to your actual question about like bet sizing, I basically always bet like 25 to 33% on the pot on the flop when I'm not the last to act guy, which, I mean, the exception to that might be if I raised pre-flop, got four bet, and then I four bet and the opponent called, and 
this spot, like due to the pot already being pretty bloated, I'm more willing to bet half pot or full pot or whatever other size just because mm-hmm. now the pot's so huge that like uh, most of the time I'll be happy to take it down. Like I'm going to have enough enough hands still that missed in my range where like I really want to fold. But uh, going back to the smaller bet size of the out of position though, I, which for me, like, I just, like, say I really began working on analyzing my Nolimic games this winter and spring, which I've found as I'm playing, and when I've been playing, like, I play a lot of Nolimic online these days, but I've found that the smaller rep size out of position really do work well, and I've gotten flop folds probably, like, way more than 20% of the time I bet quarter pot, which means, like, already just by doing that, I'm making money because they should be folding 20% of the time when I bet. And I feel like I'm getting folds a lot more often than 20%. Hmm. So, like, that right there is still a benefit that, that like, the, which, like, I look at, like, especially when it's the converse and I'm the one having to call that bet, like, the the bet size is still large enough that it's an awkward amount for an opponent to raise the bet regularly, which, which the, which the kind of, this mean that when I have, Hands with equity that want to see in the turn card, I get to quite often uh, see the turn card for not that much more money when I'm betting a quarter pot, and they're stuck having to do nothing but call. Hmm. Which, for comparison purposes, if I were to like instead check the flop when I'm out of position, and then most of the time the position player bets, he's betting anywhere from like 40 to 100 percent of the pot, and which ends up happening to me, and I'm gonna have to fold a lot of those two over cards with the backdoor draw type hands. Right. And I'm just not getting to realize the equity with a lot of hands today. I would like to see another card and hopefully get to realize the equity with them. And then uh, additionally, like say you're out of position and if you are betting three quarters of the pot as a, as a continuation bet, which especially in a tournament setting, this means that like uh, point A, the opponent might look at the pot plus what you just bet and decide this is already a nice pot, let's raise and try to take it down right here, which they could do that with a bluff or a made hand or whatever, but in either case, in general, when I'm playing a tournament, I I don't want to get raised, I want them to fold or call, like I don't want to have to make big decisions for a lot of chips because I can't rebuy, so mm-hmm. just part of the whole small ball aspect of not like at least I know for me anyway, like when people bet at larger amounts, like that, especially if you have like 30 big blinds, that's the attitude I'll often say, like, oh, there's like a decent amount, I can't call, my own choice is all in or fold, and I, hmm. I, I think that it's more conducive to not really make them have to decide to go all in against you in a tournament. So, so it's almost serving like a blocker bet in a sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Partially. Yeah. And then does, does that, that mean- actually... Go ahead. No, go ahead. Actually, no, yeah, that, and then the whole, that concept of kind of being a blocker, that would lead me to point B of, uh, when you do get called on the flop after betting a quarter pot, if you want to bluff or semi-bluff on the turn, now you get to risk way, way less your chips to do so compared to mm-hmm. if you bet half pot or three quarters pot, just the larger the pot, the more you got to bet on the next street kind of thing. So by betting the smaller amount, it makes it easy to do a second or a third barrel as a bluff without having to put every single chip in front of you that you got, like, in, into the pot. So that's kind of the other, to me, the other major benefit of when you're out of position, keeping the bet small in the flop, just because when you get called, now you can bet, a, you, you can bet less on the turn as a bluff compared to if you had bet a large pop or a large flop bet, now you have to bet even more on the turn. So just the whole keeping everything small makes your bluffs cheaper on later streets too. 
And so if you have, you know, if you have a big made hand and you're sort of wanting to extract value, I assume, you know, you'd stay consistent and, you know, with the smaller bet sizing and, and just the reality is you maybe aren't going to win as big of a pot when you win, but, you know, the, so you're, so you're losing a little upside potential, but the offset is that you're reducing your downside risk. And so you're basically just saying this allows me to play uh, with less variance throughout a tournament. Yep, yeah, which that, yeah, I'm, a lot of this, like, smaller uh, out-of-position pot betting, like, it, it wasn't me that discovered it. Like, I like I have some friends that use PO Solver a lot and Munker mm-hmm. a lot, and they've ran tons of tons and tons of sims, and all these different pro- all these different computer solvers are all pretty much saying when you're out of position, the highest EV line you can take to protect your entire range of hands is by doing those smaller bets. Because, yeah, like when you bring up the whole if you have a big hand and you're maybe losing a little bit of value because you're getting called for smaller amounts there, it's getting – that value loss is getting offset by the value you're gaining with your with your either missed hands that succeed at bluffing for cheaper mm-hmm. or they get called down but you didn't lose as much bluffing or or those marginal made hands where the players will call the smaller bets and you win, but if you bet larger, they fold. Like all those different spots combined, it's – I'm thinking yep. of your range versus our, their range. Like you're you're coming out the most ahead, even if even if with your monsters you are not gaining quite as much value as you maybe could have if you had bet like two thirds as hot. Right, and the reality is you're going to have far less monsters than you are going to have marginal made hands or bluffs. <laughs> yep, yeah, that's kind of the right. kind of the thing. Which, uh, yeah, like you, for every time you you have a huge hand, you're going to not have a huge hand like four or five, six. Right. In a lot of tournaments, it feels like 20 times. <laughs> so is this specifically now referring to just out of position? I mean, does your strategy on bet sizing change a bit if you're the preflop aggressor and you're in position? Yeah, yep, it does. Yeah, okay. in, when in position, like on the flop, I'm still mostly betting like 25 to 33% of the pot size. But if they call on the flop, then on the turn and river, like it's on for any range of bet sizes. Like a... Uh, a lot more of, I'd say, I mean, if I were to guess, I'm still probably betting like 25 to 33% of the pot of the turn. When I'm betting, maybe 25 to 40% of the time, and then mixing in some more like half pot and three-quarter sizes some more, and the occasional pot or larger size bet, which this too also is all dependent on how many chips I have and my opponents have too. So it's, it's a... So I'd say, like, uh, I'm just trying to think of, like, hypothetically, as an example, like, say the flop came king 8-2 and I was in position, they checked, I bet a fourth of a pot and I got called. Now on the turn, like, my bet size, it's going to be a larger bet if I have a big hand against a passive call station, but a smaller bet versus an aggressive player, which I'd be choosing the large, large bet versus the passive call station person because... I don't think that they're just calling the flop with a small hand here, just with a king eight two rainbow it's like mm-hmm. it's hard to hit the board. So now if they're a call station it's like, all right, let's I don't think they're gonna raise me, so let's just let's just bet pretty large and like if I got ace king on there, I'm gonna bet large and expect they're calling me with any king. They and by large I say maybe like three fourths or two thirds pot in the tournament. Assuming mm-hmm. that I still have like another like pot size bet behind me on the turn. Like uh, or before the river I should say. But if 
Yeah, it's hard, it's hard year to, for me to, like, because I've been mainly looking at this from a cash game approach where we're, like, uh, sure. 100 blinds deep. Or, like, a tournament, a lot more times you might be 20 blinds or 40 blinds deep. But, yeah, like, on, so, like, on the turn in that kind of a spot with, like, the king eight two board, like, if I only had, like, 20 blinds left and there's about 20 in the pot, we're just probably going to go all in on the turn with the uh, ace-king against the passive guy. Mm-hmm. Whereas just again, hope he calls you off, yeah. Yeah, I hope he calls off with, like, any king, or maybe he gets stubborn with pocket tens, or who knows what. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, that, against, like, a more aggressive guy on that kind of board, and they check call on the flop, I'm probably going to bet small in the turn again, just just because I think they're more capable of saying that this is a really dry board. Let's, let's perhaps I get them to make a move, or they're just, Aggressive guys are just going to be like less likely to fold in general on that kind of board. Right. So I yeah, so you, just yeah. want to give them a chance to hang themselves more or less. You want to give them a chance to call with their ace eight on a, on yeah. a king eight deuce, and you also want to give them a chance to uh, to, to fire at you if they got king jack and just don't believe you. Yeah, yep, yeah, that and okay. or like an aggressive guy, they maybe even check calling me with ten nine on that board. If the turn sure. comes to seven, and I bet small there, like even if I only have like twenty five lines behind, I bet six on the turn. They might just put me all in with that ten nine. Where right, had I bet went all in on the turn, they don't they don't have any fold equity, so they they can't make that move and they're gonna fold it. And, all right, thanks so much, Mike. Uh, appreciate that. Next week, we'll come back with part two of this conversation where we're going to touch on a couple of different topics. One is uh, the idea of when should we see bets. So not so much the bet sizing, but when we're the preflop aggressor and we're deciding if we're going to continuation bet or not, uh, what situation should we be doing that? What situation should we not be doing that? There's some different streams of thought on that, so we'll hear from Mike about his perspective. And then we'll also talk about default ranges and not so much what are the specific ranges, but what situations does he have default ranges for? Does he have default ranges for opening preflop, for three betting, for defending three bets, for four betting? Uh, Are there certain spots where there are default ranges or is it all sort of on the fly processing to determine the situation? So uh, we're going to be looking at those two things. Uh, If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, feel free to reach out to me on social media at Rec Poker on Twitter, the Rec Poker Facebook group, or email me directly, stevefredland at gmail.com. Thanks so much, everybody, and we will chat with you next week.